Hello, and welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Matt Murphy. He is the play-by-play broadcaster for the Delaware Bluecoats, the Philadelphia 76ers G League team, and he is here to talk about his journey through media. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Liam. I'm really looking forward to the conversation, especially with another Fordham Ram. Can't beat it. Oh, yeah. Not enough, never enough Rams in sports media. It has always been said by me, mostly, but uh, also well, by, me now. <laughs> by me as well. And I take a chance to brag about the Fordham alums in our industry at any possible chance. So I'm, I'm sure there's plenty more Fordham talk to be had here. Oh, absolutely. And I can't wait till we get to it. But as always, the listeners now, we will start from the very beginning. And we have Matt here. I just want to know, Matt, you know, what, uh, when did it first become a possibility in your mind that broadcasting was a thing that you wanted to and could do? Well, I, I know I just, from the jump, talked about Fordham. It certainly has to do with Fordham. Um, but I'll take it back a little bit further. Like a lot of people, I uh, grew up in a sports family. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm from South Jersey originally. My dad was actually a college basketball coach. So when I was just a couple years old at that point in his coaching career, he became the head women's basketball coach at Drexel university. So kind of grew up on the court, riding on the mascots tail, the dragon mascot and doing different things at games, Uh, grew up around basketball. And then when fast forward to through high school, through the college search, my dad's from New York. So he was the one that said, Hey, uh, Fordham's a great school. He actually grew up listening to one-on-one, which is the, longest running sports call-in show hosted by Fordham students um, at WFUV. So he knew about that. He knew about some of the names that had come through the WFUV program. So that's why I had visited, but I really didn't know everything about FUV until I had already enrolled. So I get there and it happened right away the first week of college when you go to the club fair and you hear a little bit more about what certain groups have to offer. Mm -hmm. They told me, oh, you'll be in the locker room. You'll be interviewing players and you might start on the NHL beat and go to New Jersey Devils games. And and that's what I did. So my sophomore year, I started doing some beat reporting for the Devils. And that progressed over the years to working for some other teams, including the New York Jets as a senior covering a full NFL season, but tons of events in between in terms of play by play, Mm -hmm. reporting, hosting that shaped me as a broadcaster and really fueled the fire that I wanted to do this for a career. Um, So I would say it was probably like my freshman or sophomore year of college when I really said, this is what I want to do, which is a little bit later than some people. You hear stories all the time about, oh, I was calling games on the TV when I was 10 years old, (laughs) or my friends were turning their video game sound down and letting me call the game. For me, it was, I went into Fordham as an econ major. I graduated with an econ degree, but when I got there, I fell in love with broadcasting. So it was probably about my sophomore year of getting my first on-air reps when I decided this was really what I wanted to do. Yeah, for sure. When, so they told you at the club fair that you would be able to do like beat stuff. That's a, you know, that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big freshman thing. I mean, what was the actual first thing you did for WFUV? Yeah, it's a huge selling point, right? I mean, that's when I, when I talk about Fordham and tell anybody why I enjoyed my experience so much there, the access that you have to the New York city professional teams, you can't beat it. And there's other schools that have great radio programs and television programs and things like that. But to be just a short commute away from Madison square garden or really any New York professional sports team and be able to work those games, uh, you really cannot beat that. So what I 
towards the beginning, it was the hockey world for me, which I can't, I played hockey, which is probably why some of the people on the staff were like, oh, he has a little bit of a hockey background. He played in high school. He covered, let's have him cover the devils to start. So I, I was making the commute from to from the Bronx to Newark on a regular basis. Oh man. Covering the New Jersey Devils in probably like 2015 or something. Um, and the on-air reps that I speak of when I say that's what when I first got behind a microphone and said, oh, maybe I want to be on air, I went in thinking maybe I'll be a producer. So I started producing some podcasts as an underclassman. And they were hockey podcasts. And mm. then because there was less of an interest in hockey than there was in basketball or football there was more on-air opportunities so I started hosting a hockey podcast and because you have the Islanders Devils and Rangers all in the same area we had plenty to talk about with those three teams so those were the reps they were all in hockey that I kind of uh, got behind a microphone and started realizing that I wanted to be on the air so it was a lot of hockey probably in 2014 and 2015. That's as good a start as any I mean you know hockey beat like you said you know a little bit less uh not less pressure necessarily, because obviously you want to, you know, execute to the fullest of your abilities and that sort of thing, but it's not quite as high profile a beat as the basketball or football beats might be at, uh, at the paper and with WFUV. But when, so that you, that first time you got behind the microphone, I mean, you know, I know you said that there was just more opportunity because there was so much to talk about and because hockey was one of like the like lower profile beats. But I mean, what was your exact thought process when you first decided that, you know, maybe, being on the microphone instead of just being the guy behind the screen was, you know, it's something you'd be interested in. Well, I mentioned it in a podcast setting, which is interesting now as a play-by-play broadcaster, that was not, I didn't just dump, jump into calling game action mm-hmm. right away. That came shortly after, but I think you kind of have to get over that initial hurdle of hearing your voice and oh, yeah. honing your voice. So I went into college with probably more of a Philadelphia and New Jersey-ish accent, certain words, nothing crazy, but you do learn how to speak in a slightly different way and project your voice and all those things. So that's probably what went down in the podcast setting, mm-hmm. no matter what I, what sport I was talking about. And then I remember my sophomore year calling my first game. It didn't go out on the air, but you're up at the top of the arena and you have a tape recorder and you're going, you're going to break it down after the fact with the legendary executive producer at WFUV Sports, Bob Ahrens, who for any listeners out there, remember that name because I will bring him back up, I'm sure. Um, it was against St. Bonaventure. It was a, an A-10 basketball game that was just simply being recorded as a demo. It's probably not very good. I probably have it on my computer somewhere, but I think I had a baseline enough to a point where Bob said, we can work with you. We can do this. We can get it to a point where you'll be on the air here. Um, and I did. I, I, but I, I'll remember that game forever. I'll remember making broadcast boards for the first time. That's where you have all your information for the players, height, weight, numbers, hometowns, stats, free throw percentage. I'll remember writing names phonetically for the first time, which I still do now. So St. Bonaventure had a player named Adris Taki, but it wasn't really spelled that way. Yeah. Um, but I'll remember his name forever and I'll remember that random game. I don't even know who won, but I'll remember the feeling of calling a game and doing play by play for the first time for a basketball game, for sure. Did you kind of take the initiative there or did they offer that to you? A lot of schools, you can't get on the air as early as you do at Fordham, but mm-hmm. Fordham, you have to work for it. So there's plenty of opportunity. Fordham has a lot of great athletic programs. Um, 
but you don't just get put out there straight into the fire. So if you're interested in doing play-by-play, you have to go the demo route and you have to produce enough tape that is quality enough to go on 90.7 FM and call a men's basketball game or a Fordham football game. And I mentioned the station, um, WFUV is not a college radio station, despite being on a college campus. That's a big thing that I stress a lot because we, we were college students, but we're calling it for a 50,000 watt NPR affiliate. And our audience is massive um, in the New York City area. So it was certainly a, a rigorous process to get to a point where the whole group felt comfortable with you representing WFUV. Um, but they were necessary reps. And uh, it was it was a great process because sometimes you might not get on the air until your senior year of college. But if you work hard, you can get there a little bit sooner um, in, in our situation. So what was the first live on-air game you called? It's a good question. I, I think it was um, maybe like the first game of the men's basketball regular season uh, my junior year. So probably looking at 2016, mm-hmm. 20, 2016 or so. Um, and they were playing like NYIT, I want to say. And what happens is the Fordham football season overlaps sometimes with the basketball season. So some people in, in the junior and senior classes who are ahead of you in the pecking order might still be working the, the end of the football season. Mm. So I got called in for a spot start, so to speak, um, against a Division two opponent. But I'm sure I treated it like the NBA finals. And, oh, and that's the type, the type of preparation that you continue to, uh, no matter what event you're calling, who the opponent is, where it's airing, I think you, you have to approach every game with the same amount of preparation. That's the biggest thing for me in broadcasting is, is preparation. And they really drill that into you at WFUV. Um, yeah, again, I'm sure Fordham won by 20 or 30 points, but um, that was a big moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you so you spoke before about preparation and so far as having your broadcaster boards, I believe you called them and kind of, you know, all the notes that you have there. But I mean, what does your, you know, obviously things have changed probably a little bit since college, but overall, I feel that the process is probably still similar. And so what is kind of your preparation consist of? It really depends how much time you have, but you're right. The broadcasting boards are key. Some people will call them charts. Um, in football, you might hear spotting charts for if the broadcaster has a spotter, they might have something similar with names and numbers where they're pointing out who made the tackle or something like that. But for a play-by-play person in basketball or football, I, I refer to them as boards. You'll hold them for most of the game and you'll have all the information and you'll know which color it's written in or typed in and you'll know where it all is on your boards. Um, it starts a few days out if you're lucky to have a few days before a game for football, it's a little more structured. And I do some college football now, in addition to G league basketball. Um, so football, you kind of know, Oh, maybe on a Monday or Tuesday, I'll watch film. Then I'll start my boards on this next day. But for basketball, if you're in an every day or a back-to-back situation or an every other day situation, it's a little faster, um, but it is getting the basics down first in terms of, like what I said before, the, the, the biographical stuff with jersey number, height, weight, all that, that's probably the first step. I, I do think watching film is important, especially if you're going to be doing a game on the radio. I mostly do TV these days, but all my college experience was radio, and I do some G League games on the radio. Watching film, especially of the opponent, is critical because you need to be able to identify people by 
face and characteristics and things like that rather quickly. So I like to watch maybe like a condensed version. The G League does a great job of putting out condensed 15 minute versions of games. So I'll watch previous games that way. Um, and then getting your boards done. And I think there's some, there's some other things like for me, diving into storylines is key. So once you have all the information written out on your boards, mm -hmm. take it a step further. So that's what I've learned from other NBA broadcasters over the years is your research doesn't stop with a certain fact that you read in the media guide. How much further can you take it to tell an interesting story on the air? So two seasons ago, our opening game was against Taco Fall, who many people know is seven foot six. He's on the Celtics, but he was playing with the main Red Claws. And I think he's a size 18 shoe, something like that. So if you read in his and in the media guide, where's the size 18 shoe? How about taking it a step further and figuring out who the other players to wear a shoe that size in NBA history are, and then delivering that type of information on the air. So that's what I mean. Like I tend to, in recent years, just ask myself that next question of how can we take this a layer further? Because then when he's at the free throw line in a key moment, you might've uncovered something that week that takes it a step further outside just the the media guide facts. How often do you feel like your preparation overlaps with what you end up seeing in the media guide? Pretty often. Um, I mean, broadcasters are definitely going to start with the game notes and the media guide and what teams media relations departments provide. Um, but that's why I think it's important to take it a step further because with the internet, I don't know how broadcasters back in the day used to do it, but you can pretty much find out anything if you just, search it a step further and I'm always looking at interviews that players have done in the past because the questions in previous interviews are probably based on media guide facts and then you can get that next layer from them saying it in in a previous interview so I oftentimes try to stay away from like the the uh the national media storyline so to speak so if a team was playing a game on like ESPN and you're just getting that initial layer I try to take it, I try to think of each team's fan base and what they already know versus trying to tell them something that they might not know because they don't have access to a shoot around or a practice or uh, talking to an assistant coach before the game. Something that I've picked up from Tom McGinnis, who's a, a mentor of mine, the radio voice of the Sixers for 25 plus years, he likes to talk to people courtside before the game. And that might be an opposing assistant coach. So to avoid just rehashing what's in the written materials from a PR department. If you get a firsthand encounter with an assistant coach from the visiting team, he might give you something that happened at shoot around that morning that you can then deliver on the broadcast that the person at home was never going to get if not for that conversation. So that's something that I try to keep in mind going into games as well. Yeah, that's, you bring up an interesting point that I wanted to ask you about where you know, you're talking about balancing the needs and interests of both fan bases. And I think for a lot of people, if they're assuming that if you're, you know, the Delaware Blue Coats play-by-play guy, then you're basically zeroing in on everything that Delaware Blue Coats fans would want to know. But I mean, you know, from a broadcast perspective, you want to bring as much information to the table as possible for anybody that must be watching. So how do you kind of mentally weigh that calculus, both in your preparation and on game day when you're executing? In the G League, it's interesting because uh, prior to this bubble season, the broadcast that was taken by the league was the home team's broadcast. So if any road fans of say the main red claws wanted to tune into a taco fall game, mm -hmm. they're getting me if it's in Delaware. So 
they don't have their own hometown crew for road games in the G League, or at least that's how it's been in recent normal seasons. So that also makes your preparation way more important. So I do weigh what their fans already know, what our fans already know, and and try to, it might be talking to their broadcasters or when you watch their broadcasts back from a home game, figuring out what they were talking about in the last game. I think watching other people's broadcast teams work and figuring out what the storylines were for their last game and things like that can help you kind of keep the conversation going rather than just reintroducing something that was introduced about that team or that player in the first game of the season. There's plenty that gets put out there in, in the early part of the season that there's no need to rehash anymore because people already know things. But in the G League, colleges are so important too because the fans are like, I remember this guy, but how do I remember him? So something that as a G League broadcaster that I think about a lot is whenever somebody goes to the line, two of the biggest pieces of information that I like are how many years did they play at a certain college? Where did they transfer to? How many years did they play at that college? Where did they finish their career? And that's more than two things. But the second, <laughs> the second stat, I'll group that all into one. The second stat would be years of G League experience. I think it's always interesting when you say, Joe Smith has been uh, in the G League for three seasons because that characterizes their journey and their path. And Blue Coats fans might not have known that about a Red Claws player. Yeah, and especially since in the G League, players cycle around a little bit more often than at the professional level. But so that's actually very interesting. So you have kind of in your mind, you have a spot where you would want to insert a specific or specific pieces of information. Are there other examples of that kind of in your you know, minute by minute breakdown of your own broadcast. So I'm a broadcasting nerd. And I mean, you're radio tape of the uh, actual you're, you're grinding when you're watching tape, you're grinding tape of the broadcasters as well as the G League guys. So I mean, yeah, I got that. <laughs> I think a lot of people would tell you that when you become a play by play broadcaster, you never watch a game the same way. I'm like, and it's funny to relate it to the blue coats in our recent season, I was fortunate enough to be in the bubble with our team and our staff. So they were around me a lot more than usual in, in the situations where we might be watching an NBA game just for fun during dinner. And I'm talking about the broadcasters and what they're doing well and what they're not doing so well. And, and these are basketball coaches that are like, I've never even thought about what they're saying. And you're over here breaking down everything they're doing well in the game open on camera. And we just want to watch the game. But, um, so maybe I was annoying to a little extent, but I think it showed them a glimpse into how I see things. Mm -hmm. um, but I forget what your question was. Oh, filling certain spots with certain things during a game. Radio and TV are much different in the sense that there's a lot more space on TV to tell stories. On radio, you're really limited to dead balls where you can, if somebody, it's a side out, you might have a chance to talk about somebody's background a little bit more or at the free throw line, but you also might have to get a read in for a sponsor at that time if they're at the line. Now I've done a lot more TV, which you can let the game breathe. Free throw line opportunities are great, but you also don't have to connect every dot of every pass on television. Yeah. So you don't want to get carried away with telling stories because if it's, especially if it's a close game, because you still have to call the made shots and fans of both teams are going to want you to identify the player and identify when they make a shot, when they miss a shot, when there's a big rebound or a big foul or whatever it is, but certainly a lot more space for storytelling on TV, which is why 
I think all that preparation we just talked about is way more important on TV. You can kind of get by if, if you have worked hard in the industry for a radio broadcast, if you know how to call a game, you're talking all the time and connecting movements and passes and, and things like that. You'll be exposed a little bit more for lack of preparation on TV because there's more dead air mm-hmm. and you need to fill it some of the time. You can't just let it, yeah. let it linger. So you have to come armed with plenty of stories when you're calling a game on TV and you can insert them, not just at the free throw line, really whenever, especially during blowouts, whenever you want, because people can see the action. Be right back with more gold after a word from our sponsors. That was actually brings it back to one of the overall questions that I had for you is that there's obviously tons of differences between radio and TV that anybody can point out to. But as somebody who has actually been on air for both of those things, you mentioned that radio, there's a lot less time to fill because you're just have you have to physically describe everything that's happening. Whereas TV, you can assume that the viewer can fill in some of those blanks on their own. But other than that, I mean, what are some of the other big differences that you've noticed now that you've been able to do both? Radio is all about painting the picture and TV is about kind of adding captions to a picture, which is not an original thought. And it's something you hear a lot at WFUV, um, our Fordham station and everyone who's come through there. I mean, there's a huge alumni base and a lot of them are in, in the NBA scene, which has been great for me. So Mike Breen and Ryan Rucco are two of ESPN's, NBA broadcasters who are Fordham products and they're guys that would tell you that same thing. They're trained in radio, but they've switched to TV at the highest level of, of basketball. But when you're starting at WFUV, Bob Aarons would have you describe the room that you were in to get ready for radio. You would have to describe the color of the walls or the size of the table or whatever it might be, just because you're truly painting a picture on the radio. So it's fast with basketball on the radio in terms of differences. I mean, it, it's very fast moving um, and painting the picture is, is so critical because people are totally blind. And I mean, that brings up a story. I mentioned Bob's name. He actually, not from myself, but he actually brought a blind fan during a Fordham game to sit next to the WFUV crew to let them know if they were doing a good job or not. And it was at the Barclays center where the nets play because he wanted to see how thorough the crew was being with their call. And if, if a blind person could connect everything that was happening during the game at the game. So like, that's how intense it is in terms of just the differences. And like I said, with TV, I think that's more of an analyst's medium. Mm -hmm. So on the radio, being the play by play person, you have to know what everybody looks like and who they are because you're rapidly describing it. On TV, the play-by-play person has all that down, but then you get replays in the mix and that's when it becomes big for the audience at home. So the analyst has to step in and really be on their game when it comes to TV and, and talk about why that replay looks the way it does and why that play happens. So chemistry on air, important for both, but maybe more so on TV because I have to tee my partner up in the right way for a replay so that they can explain it precisely and accurately to the viewer at home because they see the picture in front of them. Is that kind of stuff like teeing up like that? Maybe not that specifically, but just generally, is that stuff that you, you know, now you're kind of in like the thick of it all the time, but back when you were in college or whatever, is that stuff that you like 
practice or is that one of those just earned through experience things where you can you know think about it as much as you want but it's you know you can't really know if it works unless you have you're in the moment and try to execute some of its practice also a lot of its communication before the broadcast so you have to know this person that you're working with and when you get to the national levels you might do a one-off game with somebody you need to first of all not just research the players in the game that you're playing, you need to research your partner. You need to know everything about the person you're working with, especially if they're a, a former pro or a, a former reporter at the highest level. Like you need to know where they went to school, if they played, where they played, what position they were, so that where their expertise lies and what they might want to talk about. And then I think there's something to be said for just in this industry, like being um, very upfront with people before you go on the air and things, because I've had people ask me, hey, would you be comfortable talking about this during the game? And I think it works the same way. You talk to your partner and say like, hey, is this something I could ask you during the game? And then you know. Then you know if, if you bring it up that they've already thought about it, they might jot down some notes about it. So like, I don't know, if this guy goes to the line and would, would you be comfortable talking about um, his rough game in the like last week or something like that? And, and maybe they're not. So. I think just not surprising people is probably the biggest thing because then you can kind of tell as a viewer when the partners aren't on the same page. Um, you don't want to surprise anybody with a question. So if you have one that might be, you don't know for sure if they're ready for it, probably tell, tell it to them beforehand. Yeah, certainly. And so you were saying, you know, college, it was pretty much all radio. What was the first TV game you did? My first year with the, oh, actually, in college, I, I had the chance to do some games for the Atlantic 10 digital network. So that that was a, a huge learning experience for me. So sometimes they'll take WFUV radio broadcasters and pull them over to the A10 digital side to call some games. I did some Fordham women's basketball games mm -hmm. and a couple men's games um, that were TV calls. And for me, I actually served as the analyst for parts of those games. They would just mix and match play-by-play -play and analysts um, for certain events. And I had the chance to sit back and watch some more experienced play-by-play -play people on the television medium. And I was the analyst and I was breaking down replays and we might alternate halves or something like that, which is an interesting approach. Um, but I had a few games at Fordham that helped prepare me. And then when I got to the Blue Coats, I was the primary TV play-by-play -play voice right away. So the first season was a lot of learning on the fly and it was not only my first year really like full-time tv it was also a transition year for the organization so they were playing at the university of delaware for a few games my first year before moving into a brand new arena oh, okay. while we were playing at delaware my first handful of games we didn't have a monitor to see during our tv broadcast so i was pretty green i mean i'm still green and i on this podcast, I just want to deliver the perspective of someone who's young and like developing in the industry. And by no means am I where I want to be yet, but I was very green and I was at the disadvantage of not being able to see what the viewer at home could see for my first few games. So I was just hoping that I wasn't talking about something completely random when they're showing a player on the bench or, or the opposing coach or something like that. So, and it comes full circle in the bubble this year because there was so much movement and different games coming in and out and games every day and multiple games at the couple of arenas they had in one day, I didn't have a monitor there either. So I had our crew back in Delaware telling me, 
hey, they're showing Connor Johnson. And I'm like, in my ear, and I'm like, there's Blue Coats head coach Connor Johnson, who nights his 100th game on the sidelines. And like, I was, I could not see what they were showing at the start of my career. And then most recently in the G League bubble in Florida, I was also without a monitor, but I've definitely learned a lot over the years. Um, there's nothing to be, that can be substituted for experience. So doing a handful of seasons worth of TV now and consuming as many games as I can on TV and, and taking little bits and pieces from the best people who do it like a Mike Breen is, is really key. Yeah. And so you built up, you know, a great resume at Fordham with a variety of different, you know, skills and positions that you managed to fill and you were on the A-10 network and all that good stuff. But how did you actually end up getting this gig with the Blue Coats as the youngest play-by-play broadcaster in the G League? So much of this business is, is luck. And I've been very lucky so far. And that's not to discount any of the work that I've done. I think I've worked really hard as well. And there's a lot more work to be done. But when I say luck, it more so comes down to timing. The mm-hmm. timing was really good. It, it just so happened that I sent my stuff, my, my broadcasting tapes from Fordham to the Bluecoats, who had a broadcaster on the way out at the same time. Um, and they liked it. They wanted to talk with me more. And for someone who grew up in South Jersey and was a Sixers fan, that was cool to go and interview at the Sixers training complex in Camden, talk with some people there. And, and as we were in that process, it, they, they talked about adding some different digital media things and public relations things. And I break my role down now into how it started as well with three main areas. So I, I do the play-by-play. I also handle media relations and social media as well. So that, that was all from the jump three years ago, and I'm still doing those things now. But it started with a, an email. And I think the message there is you have to take chances with your work. So whatever you do in sports media, if it's on air or writing or whatever it is, I think you'll never know if someone's going to like it or not if you don't put it out there. So I, social media is great, but also find the right people to, to send it to that might hire you someday. Like it's not just putting it out there for people to read or listen to on social media. I think you, you have to do your research on where you want to work, who you might want to work for, check in with them periodically and say, Hey, I'm really proud of this game that I called or this piece that I wrote. Would you mind like checking it out and like just finding different ways to stay in touch. And mine just happened to be a cold email in in the spring of my senior year. And I was in a sports broadcasting class at Fordham. And the response was like, Hey, I think you sound great. Let's talk soon. And I was in a college class about sports broadcasting. And I'm like, wow, this is for the G League team of the Philadelphia 76ers. That's pretty cool. And I'm glad that it's worked out in the years since. Yeah, certainly. And now, so you uh, recently shared the story about you didn't, you know, you didn't have a monitor your first couple of games of your G League or your like first ever, you know, full-time professional play-by-play broadcasting career. And now that you have a couple of seasons behind you, when you look back on that first season as a whole, what's some stuff that you're proud of? And then what's some stuff that you felt like you worked on over the next few seasons? When I said the thing about the monitor, that's no shot at the blue coats at all. Like they, they, they do a great job with everything. It's more so that jumping into my first professional gig during a transition period where they were rebranding the team and moving arenas, moving into a brand new arena was pretty hectic for everybody involved. Um, and I by no means should be at the top of anyone's priority list as the, <laughs> the broadcaster and someone who wears multiple hats. Some of that probably fell on me. Like I should have 
had the broadcast table probably in better shape for my first couple of <laughs> games, but it was certainly a learning experience. Um, I think some of the things I talked about already have gotten better over the years. Like you don't just, sometimes people step into a, a job like this and like, they think that they're, they don't need to improve and, or that they got the job and they like, they're good enough already. I, I was not good enough at the start, probably like, Fordham prepared me very well, but it was a different league, professional basketball. The tempo is much higher. I've probably adjusted to the speed of the game a little bit better. And when I talked earlier about partner chemistry, I've had the, the great fortune of working with a couple different partners at different times, but primarily D Lynham, who used to be a longtime 76ers reporter, still is, works at 97.5 The Fanatic right now in Philadelphia. And I probably had to prove myself a little bit to her at the beginning too, um, just in the sense that like, you always have to critique your own work and get better. So th that's probably the biggest thing I did was go back and watch games and, and figure out how you can get better. Because if you're making a mistake as a broadcaster and you don't watch it back, you're just going to keep making that mistake over and over again. So um, correcting things that I was doing wrong at the beginning, as soon as possible was probably the biggest thing. And the continuity that D and I have built up over, a couple seasons she wasn't in the bubble but we did all of our pre-game and halftime and post-game coverage together we've developed a real flow now um and i think at the start it was about looking at yourself and where you can improve certainly and then we've discussed you mentioned the bubble a couple times now and i kind of want to get the info on that because if i understand correctly you were the only play-by-play -play broadcaster in the g league bubble so kind of how did obviously you know insane hectic time between the, when the pandemic started and when that actually got started up. But I mean, as far as from, you know, what happened with you kind of, how did that come together? How did you get that invite? And then how did it go? Like the NBA bubble, the traveling parties were limited to a certain extent where everybody's talking about who do we need, who, who makes sense, what roles contribute in multiple ways. And um, every G league team got to have, a content person and because I do not just play-by-play -play, but all the communications and PR stuff plus social media I think I was a natural fit in that sense um, but I was the only broadcaster there because the league had their broadcasters doing it remotely off monitors um, back home so no other team sent their local broadcasters we have a, a TV partner with the Bluecoats in Delaware DETV and it's we're a couple years into this relationship and we were the only team that even tried something that kind of seemed crazy of putting me in there, sending mm -hmm. my audio back out from Orlando, them kind of matching it up in Delaware and putting it out as a local broadcast. Only a handful of teams even tried a local broadcast. And we were the only ones that had a D line in the studio. And we had Jason Crafton, who's a college coach, former assistant coach for the blue coats joining our studio coverage. Um, he's at the university of Maryland, Eastern shore right now. So we did a lot more innovative things with our broadcast than anybody else did, but I was the only one courtside. So as part of the traveling party, like it's just players, coaches, and trainers. So when the games were tipped off, everybody's looking at me like, why is this guy screaming and, and <laughs> calling the game? Like the players could hear everything, which was probably the weirdest part for me. Even the NBA broadcasters, when they got sent to Florida, they were, I think up a little bit, maybe like middle yeah. of the first yeah. level. I was next to the bench because that's where the PR person sits. And they were like, you can do the game from your PR spot. So guys would check into the game. They would say things to me. They just noticed me more because there were no fans there. 
So that was probably the funniest part. Like a quick story is that the Bluecoats were playing the Raptors G League team, the Raptors 905 in the regular season. And it was dead silent on a free throw. And I said something like former Sixer Nick Stauskas up to 10 points. And he heard me and he just like pointed over like directly at me, like a shout out, like a tip, a tip of the cap, which you might not get during a normal game with any sort of fans in attendance. Definitely. And I mean, that's sort of, I feel like in the G league, obviously there was some inner uh, in the bubble. I mean, there was some, you know, more interaction with players in the way that you're speaking about, but I mean, just as a whole, as a broadcaster, how do these interactions with your players kind of play into how you want to do your job and how much do you, if at all, do you make a point to try to talk to some of these guys? It's a fine line to balance for sure. And that's why to take it back to Fordham, that's something that's drilled in you right away is, how to approach players in the locker room. So I think I have an interesting perspective of being the reporter Mm -hmm. in the locker room in my college years, interviewing New Jersey Devils players and interviewing New York Rangers players or New York Jets players, just as someone with an iPhone held up to them. Now in my current role, I'm the PR person at the same time as being the broadcaster. So I'm inviting those types of media members in and and trying to give young reporters a chance or an opportunity during a normal season that's not the bubble to do their thing um, and learn the craft but I think when it came to the bubble it's about the fine line is about what you can use on air versus what you can't so you might develop a friendship with some of the guys or whatever but you have to be open and honest like hey can I use that on air or hey is that a story I can tell so I've gone like from one end of the spectrum of being just the reporter that they might never talk to until maybe never, maybe not for the rest of the season, if there's not a story about them or they don't have a great game to someone they see every day, but that's also reporting in the sense of calling the game. So um, I've seen it from both sides and it's just about like a mutual respect and a comfort level. And the guys will certainly get comfortable with you, but that the more comfortable players get, the more you have to be careful with, what you say over the air because some stuff is is meant as a friend some stuff is hey that's a great story let's get that out there about you on the broadcast now i have to earn my salary so stay tuned for more press pass after this yeah i always thought that was an interesting dynamic between broadcaster and player because they occupy the space that you so adequately described it's very i don't know it's intriguing but i mean now that you have you know you're out of the bubble and you kind of have the chance to look back on it with some hindsight I mean how do you feel about the fact that you were you know only play-by-play guy in there for this what is probably hopefully a one-off event only time in G League history that will ever happen like how do you feel about your place in that history when I say I'm a, a young guy that's just starting out like it's hard for me to really contextualize these things until down the road but I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity I'm lucky again lucky to to that my hard work resulted in something like that because I'll always remember that I think that group of people we made it all the way to the championship and and wins and losses aren't the only thing in the G League a lot of it's player development and hey how can we get this guy to contribute to the NBA team and in my first couple years that's what it was all about a shake Milton becoming a rotation player with the 76ers playing uh, a full season almost with the blue coats as a rookie um but the winning was great too so we'll always remember this season for a championship run it was a short and regular season but the staff with connor johnson the head coach and all the way down i think the group will remember the experience and a lot of it was off the court so the winning was great but like i was 
one of the rebounders in in practice because of the size of the traveling party and um, passing to some of the guys. And we're all getting tested every morning on the same schedule for COVID. And it's just something unique that, like you said, hopefully it's not replicated again. Um, But away from the court, just doing things like playing we played a lot of card games. So we had some heated games of monopoly deal in the bubble and (laughs) in the parking lot, we played pickleball, which in every interview I do, I talk about pickleball because I had picked it up at the start of the pandemic and they had courts set up in the bubble. So of course I actually brought two paddles to the bubble (laughs) and then was telling everyone, Hey, this game is awesome. Let's play. And it took a little bit of time for people to come around, but we got into a swing where we were doing things like that away from the court a lot, like playing games. So uh, for a lot of reasons, I'll remember it. And I'm very fortunate that I had the opportunity to, to be a part of it. For sure. <laughs> I guess it's also being in that silent arena with all those guys is a solid reminder that everybody hears what you're saying all the time, even if that's not necessarily the case when the stands will be full again, they'll hear it somewhere or the other, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I like the feel of, I love the feel of when fans are in the stands. And in our arena in Wilmington, it's pretty intimate it's 2500 seats and when I have my boards and I'm suited up and I'm walking over to the broadcast position and you can kind of feel like people sitting courtside saying oh like oh there's the broadcast team they're about ready to go on the air and you kind of get that energy and we didn't have that in the bubble so I'm really excited like when I look ahead like I'm so excited for the first game back with fans and on big shots and things like that because they Sometimes when you talk about the differences between radio and TV, like we did before on a big shot on TV, a a Mike Breen bang call, for example, shout out to Fordham where he developed that call. Mm -hmm. The, he says something quickly because if it's the home team's crowd, he doesn't have, he doesn't want to scream to get over the crowd. So that's why he gets in and out with a bang and then the crowd takes over. But if I'm to scream bang in the in the G League bubble, then it's just dead silent after. So I might have to describe the play more and the player who made the shot quickly just to keep it flowing. So I think like I'm just excited to have that crowd noise following big moments again. And you mentioned Mike Breen's bang is probably one of the most famous broadcast calls in the modern NBA game. And you said that, you know, you grind tape of other broadcasters. And so when obviously you would never, you know, take something from somebody else but insofar as when you're trying to kind of refine your own broadcasting game when you listen to these guys what's the kind of thing that you like listening to and you that you could incorporate into kind of your own style it's a great question on term in terms of what you take from others because I try to take the most subtle things that nobody would call me inauthentic or anything like that like I'm talking like even like transitions in and out of commercial breaks because there's a great quote. It's Red Barber, um, who's a famous baseball broadcaster. Uh, I don't want to butcher it because it's relayed down from Ryan Rucco, who's a voice of the NBA on ESPN, um, a a WFUV product. But Ryan Rucco said that Red Barber, I think, told Vince Scully that the only thing you can bring into the booth is yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you were to copy a bang call or anybody's famous call Marv Albert says yes everybody says yes a lot of people say yes on a made shot sometimes there's no avoiding it but if it's like a very specific call bang you you don't want to steal catchphrases yeah 
you kind of develop your own voice and how you call big shots and things like that. So I think when I'm watching, I'm looking more at when they come on camera for the game open, how do they, how do they deliver their first question to their analyst or uh, they're how much they're smiling when the camera hits them for the first time or what they're doing with their hands or like their posture, like things like that, that specific rather than I really liked the words he used to describe that made shot. I'm going to do that the next time I call a game. Mm -hmm. I think there's something to be said for differentiating the way you not big moments, but you call made shots because you can't just stick with one thing over and over again. Maybe someday when you get to a certain point, you'll be known for a thing, but there's also not that many unique calls left. I mean, like there's only so many ways to describe a made basket. So um, you don't really have your, your signature call. Uh, there's not many signature, signature calls available, I guess I'm trying to say. Well, yeah, exactly. Cause it's, it's like you mentioned with Marv Alberts. Yes. Like, yeah, you're not, you're going to say yes when a basket is made sometimes just because it's such a limited phrase, but the difference comes in kind of the intonation, the candidates and things of that nature. You know what I really like in terms of maybe even more on the radio. I really like when people get so excited that they repeat the same line over and over again, like college basketball buzzer beater. He got it. He got it. He got it like over and over again, like just so excited that something happened as opposed to just let me get my signature call and lay out. Um, so like the repetitive nature of a home run call, like Gary Cohen does like uh, it's out of here. And like the Bartolo Cologne home run, he said it twice. And Mike Breen sometimes does a double bang. I like when people get so in the moment that they don't even try to mix it up or simply lay out. They just they stay on the call by just repeating what they said because it's such an exciting time. And I think it's a tough balance, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it in terms of, you know, being able to communicate, you know, everything that's happening while also remaining authentic. And I think that that kind of that repetition aspect that you're talking about really leads into the authentication, authentic aspect, rather, where, you know, it might be more creative or more helpful to say oh he made it oh he got it or some you know variation of that but you want to stay authentic and stay in the moment so the fans can appreciate kind of the energy and the emotion you bring to the call but at the same time you still need to stick to your kind of basic you know you got to check your boxes as a broadcaster so I mean I know I realize that that's probably not like an active thinking thing but as far as just like on a subconscious level how do you sort of try to approach that in your own broadcasting personally I have not had a ton of close games to call not that the the blue coats have given me some exciting games but like in the Fordham days I plenty of my colleagues have had buzzer beaters to call and things like that just the luck of the draw I have not I've called halftime like end of quarter buzzer beaters never called like a game winner um so I'm excited to see how I react in those moments going forward but it's such a subjective thing so the the shot from Gonzaga, Jalen Suggs, to take a recent example, as we record this just after March Madness in 2021, the Jalen Suggs Final Four shot, you can see on social media, here's the six ways that it was called. Gonzaga Radio, uh, UCLA Radio, CBS, International, what, uh, Westwood One National Radio. And everyone's like, this call stinks, this call's good, this call stinks. And it might be flipped for the next person who listens to all of them and how the broadcaster handled it in that moment. So it's such a subjective business. I don't think you can get caught up in, I'm going to call it this way because this is what people are going to like. 
Um, you just, you have to stay authentic. When we talk about that term, you have to call it the way that, that you think it's going to be the best for you and the, mo the emotions that you're feeling. That brings up a quick thing on scripting things versus not scripting things for in the booth. So like, do you have a final call that you wrote down? That mm -hmm. could come off as inauthentic and very obvious that you're reading it. But it might work for some people if they write down a couple bullet points that they want to get in about historical context for uh, the winning team. So it, it's all subjective and it's all what works for you, but you do have to stay true to yourself for sure. Certainly. And we've talked a lot over the course of the podcast here about, you know, the very impressive group of alumni that you're joining as Fordham guys and Fordham, you know, Fordham has a lot of people in sports media as a whole, but I think in particular broadcasting is an area where we have a lot of really, really big names. And so, I mean, what does it mean for you as a play-by-play -play broadcaster early in your career to be entering into those ranks with names like Mike Green and those guys? When I think of my mentors, I'm so fortunate that Fordham has produced so many people who laid the foundation for what I do now mm -hmm. and they have all been great and they'll they're very responsive in terms of helping the next group of not just Fordham broadcasters but everyone coming up at the same time I think Fordham has a special place in their hearts like it does in mine so they not only pave the way for hey this is possible for you look at like just watch their path and watch the games that they call like Mike Breen doing the NBA finals or Ryan Rucco doing a game of the week on ESPN or most recently for him, the women's final four and national championship on ESPN. But they also are a great example of paying it back to the class behind you or the people behind you. So they, they set a great example, both in the, in the work way and here's where we made it to, but also here's what you should do as well. So to be a part of that fraternity and to have them, to have my name associated with the Fordham alums that have had great success in the business. Like I cannot understate how important that is like to me and how special that feels. And then I think like, it's not just the Fordham people though. When I think about my mentors, like being in a great organization, like the 76ers talking with Tom McGinnis, the radio voice, who's been in that spot for 25, over 25 years. He has been an incredible resource for me. Like not just, just being a person that has done it and is, is helping me. He'll come do Delaware blue coats games and, and I'll shift over to radio and, and we'll talk about it and I'll fill him in on what our team's doing. And we'll talk about the Sixers. And I think a lot of it is just being an approachable person in this business and all the Fordham people are, and they showed me how to be that way as well. And, and the Tom McGinnis's of the world do that in addition to just people who went to Fordham he's an example of someone who approaches the industry the right way, just like all those WFUV people do. And I'm trying to do the same thing because we do have a, a standard to uphold and I'm not where I want to be yet. And I, I just, when I get there, I know what to do because of the success that people from WFUV have had before me. Most definitely great answer. I would say, I'm sure any of the uh, potential listeners are going to take note of that for sure. And as you look back upon your, you know, young career, as we mentioned to this point, is there any, and I'm interested in just kind of your thought process on it. Is there any one call that you can remember from your college days or your G league days that really stands out to you as something that you're especially proud of? I said that I did not call a buzzer beater. It would probably be a buzzer beater if I had one. Yeah. But um, 
I think it's making the playoffs this year because it's my third season. And, and like I said, it's not all about winning in the G League, but to, to be a part of a historic season in the bubble, to be the only person there calling games and to make the playoffs for the first time, not just in my three years, but in the franchise's existence, which for the Delaware franchise, which moved, it, it only goes back to 2013, but that's still almost 10 years of not making the playoffs. So for this group to see their hard work, because I came in with the coach, with the GM, mm -hmm. to see their hard work over the last three years pay off in making a playoff, making a playoff appearance for the first time and then making it to the finals. I did not get the chance to call the games in the playoffs. They were ESPN only, but um, the lead up to the playoffs, playing 15 games in like 20 something days or 20 days or whatever it was, almost every day to call the game late in the season where they clinched against the can charge Cleveland's G league team. That was probably one that I'll remember for a while. Definitely. And you just spoke about kind of how nice or enjoyable it is for you to kind of develop along with your, you know, the coaches and the staff and the team as a whole, how rewarding or, you know, just cool at the base of it is it to be able to see guys like you mentioned, Shake Milton. I think the most recent example for the blue coats is Paul Reed kind of see their games develop and move up to the next level. It's awesome. I think the growth of the G League as a whole is something that people should take note of if they haven't already. You can just look. I mean, most NBA rosters, more than half of the roster played in the G League, which is an impressive stat. And to, to see it firsthand in the Sixers organization with a Shake Milton, a second round pick who's now a very pivotal part of the Sixers team, I saw him from the very beginning and I was calling his 25 point efforts every night in Delaware, Paul Reed, I called his MVP season. And now he's back with the Sixers and living out his NBA dream. So we talk a lot about the pursuit of a dream in Delaware and how we have this group of players that's pursuing their NBA dream. We have a staff, a coaching staff and a business staff that are in pursuit of wherever they want to go in, in their, in their careers. So to be a part of that group that's all chasing a dream and then to watch Sixers games and see those guys live it out is it's special for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think the G league is going to continue to grow in both importance. And I mean, it's, it's becoming more and more relevant each year because teams are using it so well. And then the continuity between the programs is just continuing to rise. I mean, the Sixers are a stone's throw away. They can just send guys, to get their work in and it's not looked down upon it's I'm going to go like Paul Reed. I'm going to go down to the G league bubble and I'm going to win MVP or I'm going to be the best player there. And then he wins MVP. And now he's back with the Sixers. So yeah, it's good stuff. And then, I mean, now that we talked to kind of like about the team specifically, but looking at the media sphere as a whole, I mean, you're on the internet as much as I am. I'd imagine you see that there's a lot of right now, the, you know, hot trending topic is a lot of critiques that are kind of thrown at our on-screen personalities that cover the, game, cover the game at a national level and kind of, you know, the different ways that they choose to approach that and the positives and benefits. So, I mean, just as a general question, what's something about your job as a play-by-play -play broadcaster that you feel like people might not understand without being inside the booth, if you will? I knew that was coming. I'm a fan of your show, and I know some of the questions that you talk to people about. And I think it's really interesting when it comes to me and play-by-play -play because 
I think there's a lot that people don't understand about play-by-play and we got into the nitty-gritty because like I said I'm a broadcasting nerd so I hope people learn some things from that as well but I don't think anybody like they're not locked in as much as like we said I am when I'm watching a broadcast so people don't think they don't know the amount of preparation that goes into these things so the national stuff is a little bit different but they're still preparing the same way and they're preparing for both teams and they have all this information at the the tip of their fingers but i think a big one that i want to get across is like the differentiation of the roles and the and the skill sets that crews have so a lot of people don't understand the difference or the what skills it requires to be a good play-by-play person versus a good analyst versus a good sideline reporter. I think there's so much of a blend there in the minds of the average viewer. They just think all the people who are on air are trained the same way. Whereas the play-by-play person is preparing a ton to be successful. So when you hear things like, oh, my my least favorite play-by-play commentator is Tony Romo. Like that doesn't make sense because Tony Romo is doing a completely different thing Mm-hmm. than Jim Nance or um, Tracy Wolfson or whatever. Like everybody is is trying so hard to make a successful broadcast and they're all skilled in their own way. And for me, the thing I would want to get across is the play-by-play person is like the point guard. They're like teeing up the rest of the crew. So if you want them to like deliver hot takes or something, like some people aren't understanding, like that's not what they're there to do. They're... Mm-hmm or I know more than this person, like I could be doing this on that broadcast. Like they don't, they don't know, like they don't know basketball. Like I know basketball, but they might be a heck of a point guard when it comes to a broadcast and how it should be divvied up. So I think like just the differentiation of the roles and what skills people bring to the table is something that people don't know going in like the average viewer. Yeah, certainly. And then we've talked a lot about kind of your, you know, what what you like to do in terms of preparation, watching other broadcasters. Who are some of your favorite broadcasters in the game right now that, you know, when you're watching that tape, you're like, oh, yeah, that's the good stuff right there. I, I've got to get Fordham people out of the way first, probably. <laughs> <laughs> people are like people are going to hate Fordham by the end of this because I, I said the word so much. But <laughs> Mike Breen, it's hard to argue against Mike Breen in any setting. Any NBA fan would say like they like the NBA finals broadcast when he teams up with Jeff Van Gundy and uh, Mark Jackson. I, I, I think it would be hard to find someone who doesn't think Mike Breen is the cream of the crop when it comes to calling the NBA on TV and, and Knicks games for that matter. So he's someone that I watch all the time and I get pumped up when he's on a big game uh, or on a Sixers game or something like that. I think if you're looking for ways to get better, if you, if someone out there is a, aspiring broadcaster listen to people on the radio I think it can be underrated how good how talented some of Westwood One's radio broadcasters are for things like the Super Bowl or the Olympics or um, the Final Four Uh, Kevin Kugler the voice of the Final Four is incredibly sound when it comes to play-by-play X's and O's so he's a non-Fordham guy that I like someone similar that's really good at calling basketball on the radio is a Fordham guy. The, the voice of the Brooklyn Nets, Chris Carino, is really great at calling games on radio. So if you have League Pass and you have the radio side of League Pass, tune into some Nets games. If you don't already, you'll hear WFUV's own Chris Carino doing a great job. Um, and then one more TV one that's non-Fordham. I, Ian Eagle, when we talk about excitement, he's incredible. Like He doesn't have... A, he has some signature things, but for me, it's like his 
oohs and ahs when a big moment happens. And, and that's being a sports fan. And that's what the fan is doing at home. So I think he does a, a great job of that on big shots and big dunks and things like that. Yeah. He's a great one. Even if his, uh, the fact that he's never had a condiment before in his life is definitely <laughs> questionable quality, but, uh, and he's, and I'm not biased there. I, I don't know him personally. He's, he's someone that I have not met yet, maybe in passing at a Sixers Nets game or something, but not on a personal level. I, I just have major respect for what he brings to the table um, on television. And I can't confirm he's a cool guy. Talked to him in a media day once. Really nice. All right, Matt, we'll end up with the last question that I'm sure you were expecting as somebody who's listened to a couple episodes. It's very simple. It's just what is something about this job or perhaps this industry that, you know, you now know a couple of years in your career that you wished you had known when you were back as a sophomore or junior at Fordham really first starting to prepare to get into this industry? I don't know that I have an answer yet, but I'm not, I'm going to keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a few years in and there's little things. I'm still learning things every day. Like I said, I think the day you stop watching your stuff back and trying to fix flaws is not a good day because somebody out there might not hire you because of that flaw you have. And how are you going to fix it and get to where you want to be if you're not actively critiquing yourself or, or seeking, seeking critique from others in terms of like I don't know that I have a good answer for what I wish I knew when I started but some things looking back that are more broad would be like working hard and I tweet this a lot like every couple weeks like work hard be kind it's from Marty Smith at ESPN his book he shares a story about Tony Finau and this quote stuck with me I read it over the summer work hard be kind I think not that I was not those things but like maybe I didn't approach every day that way when I started. So I would say approach every day with that in mind. I believe in myself a lot and my skill set, but outside of that, just simply working hard on a daily basis and being nice to people goes so far. So like maybe it's to do that on a more regular, to just wake up every day and think about that. And also I knew this from the start, but it, it still rings true today anyone out there who's starting out like your first few years, if you're a broadcaster or a writer or anything in sports media, it's going to be challenging at times. So the importance of your support system, your family and your friends, I was so lucky. I am so lucky to be close to home because you will never rely on your support system more than the first few years out of school in sports media, because it's not glamorous at times. (laughs) So I think like I, I probably knew that going in, but it's worth repeating because it's, it's so true. Um, like my girlfriend would tape my boards for Alvernia college football games. Like I would do them and we'd be in the car driving a couple hours for a division three football game. And at the highest level, there's companies that make boards for, for people in the NBA or the NFL but I'm, I have like a bunch of legal size sheets of paper that we're taping together in the car and like putting it in a suitcase and running out to the game for D3 football. So it's not glamorous. So the support system that you have and you have in your corner is going to be huge for you in your first few years out. Um, but also just a simple mindset every day of we're all in this together and being nice to people and being approachable. 
Yeah, I certainly think the we're all in this together aspect of it uh, was hammered home over the last 13 or so months for everybody, regardless of industry. But it's a good lesson for anybody in sports media, especially. And Matt, thank you so much for coming on, man. It was really great. Always nice to talk to an exciting young rising talent in this industry. And I'm really excited to see what you do next. Liam, thanks so much. I had a great time. It was a fun conversation. Good stuff. And uh, go Rams in case anybody had any question about that. (laughs) Go Rams always. And thank you, listener, as always, for tuning into the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. I'm your host, Liam McEwen, signing off.